If you do it right, you're going to be in the room with really smart people. But don't just blindly follow what they say, do what they did. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Hard Bad Athletics Inside and Out podcast. I am your host, Derek Batman. Today we're joined by a special guest, John Berardi, the co-founder of Precision Nutrition, a man who has not only shaped the way we think about nutrition, but also how we approach our health and fitness journeys. John is here to share his incredible journey of starting Precision Nutrition, the vision that propelled it forward, and the importance of curiosity in building a successful career. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. We're going deep on a variety of topics today, from the power of finding mentors and adapting their advice to your unique life, to busting myths about carbohydrates and the importance of a balanced, flexible approach to nutrition. John and I will also tackle the challenges of balancing fitness commitments with life changes like parenting and dive into the groundbreaking concept of health span, how measuring health markers and genetic analysis can offer insights into optimizing our health for the long haul. Get ready for a conversation packed with actionable advice, reflections on the evolution of health and fitness, and insights into creating meaningful communities. I must admit, this is a long episode, but it is absolutely one of my all-time favorite interviews, and I feel privileged to have had the chance to interview John for a full 90 minutes. This is one episode you won't want to miss. Enjoy the show. Hey everyone, real quick before we dive into the episode, you probably heard about this podcast directly from someone else or saw it shared on social media. We can only grow, spread our message further and keep bringing in awesome and amazing guests with your help. If you could take five seconds and hop on whatever podcast platform you're using and leave us a review, it would mean the world to us. On to the show. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to give a huge shout out to our amazing sponsor, Lucid Branding Solutions. If you're running a service-based business and looking to boost your profitability, you'll want to hear this. Lucid Branding Solutions is your go-to partner for transforming your business's online presence. They specialize in creating visually stunning media that's not just eye-catching, but tells the story of your brand in a compelling way. But that's not all. In today's digital world, having a strategy is key. Lucid Branding doesn't just throw ideas at the wall to see what sticks. They craft tailored digital media strategies that align with your business's goals, ensuring that your brand not only gets noticed, but remembered. And let's talk about leads. We all know how crucial they are. Lucid Branding optimizes lead nurture systems, ensuring that from the first point of contact, your potential customers are engaged, informed, and ready to take action. Plus, in a world driven by data, Lucid Branding Solutions stays ahead of the curve. They provide top-tier data insights, giving you a competitive edge and keeping your business at the forefront of your customers' minds. So if you're ready to take your service-based business to the next level with a branding strategy that's as smart as it is stylish, visit Lucid Branding Solutions today. That's www.lucidbrandingsolutions.com. Trust me, your brand deserves this kind of brilliance. Now let's get back to the show. John Berardi, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. I appreciate you having me. Absolutely, man. Uh, you know, it's funny. My wife doesn't know many people that I interview, but when I mentioned okay. that I was interviewing the founder or the co-founder of Precision Nutrition, she was like, oh, my coach sends me information on them all the time. Like, so she's she's getting your infographics and stuff. So I was like, uh, oh, that's great. John has, has spread his influence all over the place, even in my own home. <laughs> yeah, I love infiltrating the family unit uh, with information that hopefully helps people. 
Oh, of course. Well, obviously it's helped people to, to the place that it's grown. You know, I, I wanted to ask you, like, what was the, the vision for you in, in starting Precision Nutrition in the first place? Yeah. So uh, for those, uh, those folks listening in who don't know, you know, I've been retired for a little while. So it's, you know, uh, you get a full pass for not knowing who I am or what, what I did when, when I was working. But um, especially nowadays, I feel like uh, with the pace that information travels and, and new things are cropping up, like you retire for three to five years and you might as well be gone a hundred years. But yeah, I mean, um, so, you know, I started this company precision nutrition and we went on to become the world's largest, uh, I guess, nutrition education, coaching and software company. And when you ask about the vision at the beginning, there wasn't any, I didn't really have that kind of a plan. You know, I, I come from a very working class immigrant family, didn't have big entrepreneurial dreams or anything like that. I, I, I didn't have any of those kind of certainly expectations for myself. But, you know, I wrote about I've read, written about this before, so we don't have to rehash it all on the podcast. But, you know, I, I also kind of had a toughish upbringing and, and had a rough go through my teenage and high school years. And uh, it was really kind of finding the gym toward the latter part of my uh, high school and then early university years and finding some real solid mentorship there uh, that put me on a positive life track. And um, so just kind of having this passion for exercise, fitness, you know, sport to some extent, nutrition, that just became the thing. I just wanted to learn lots about it, you know? So I was, and many people listening can probably appreciate this. It's probably how you got here also, right? Like, yeah, I was thinking about something else, but then this came into my life and it benefited me so tremendously. And then, you know, yada, 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 I decided to make a career out of it. Right. And, uh, so I didn't have a vision for it. It was just like, what's interesting, what's fun. What am I curious about? Let me explore that. Where is that going to take me next? Oh, okay. Well, it takes me to graduate school. All right, cool. I still don't have to choose my career yet. I'd um, be a student for a really long time. Uh, don't have to worry too much about making money because I was able to get some, you know, tuition assistance and, you know, teaching assistantship. You make a couple bucks there, you know, so you can still like continue delaying the inevitable of having to be a grown up and, and find, you know, work in the world and just pursuing those curiosities and interests in this particular space and also finding out like uh, where, where are people not going in the space? Because like when I when I got started nowadays, it's so different. So it'd be hard for people to picture what it was like. But most of the people interested in this kind of stuff either went out and became like a strength coach, personal trainer, right? Or they, if they were interested in nutrition, nutritional biochemistry and stuff, they would go work for a supplement company. Those are like the only two kind of visible paths if you're into these kind of things. And I was really interested in, in strength and conditioning and, and that kind of stuff. But I realized, man, there's so many of them. I'd just be, it would just all be competition for me, right? Every person who was into the same things I'm into would be my competitor now. And that doesn't feel great. And has, from some of the shenanigans I saw in the supplement industry at the time, and they're still going on, it's, it's no different, but that didn't feel like a wholesome place to try and build a career. You know, some of my friends with PhDs who were well-educated, they, you know, would go work for one company and then there'd be like some kind of shakeup there or some kind of scandal. And then they go to another company and it'd be like this, you know, merry-go-round of company to company to company. And that didn't seem great to me. So that's when I was like, you know, I really love doing education. During my my graduate school, that's where I really found a lot of joy. Where I, you know, I'd go learn things in scientific journals and in the lab doing experiments, and then I'd want to just like share them with a lot of people. 
And I want to share them with my community, not just the scientific community, right? The, my people, the weightlifting people, the fitness people, the people who want to eat healthy for whatever longevity or sport. So I was like, okay, cool education. All right. How do you do that? So at the time, education was just travel around the globe and do speaking circuits. And that wasn't for me either. Didn't like to travel that much. I like to be home in my own routine, much more introverted than the typical speaker. This is kind of a roundabout way of answering your question, but I'm getting to like, mm, there's all these things that are possible in the spaces I'm interested in and curious about. None of them feel like a really great fit. And right at that time, the internet's emergent, right? Like most people are on dial up just before this minute of starting Precision Nutrition. And then all of a sudden, everyone has dial up, like, or sorry, high speed, seemingly overnight. So now you're like, oh, I could actually do education on the internet. You know, so like I could make videos and write articles and do all this kind of stuff. I, I'm fully aware this sounds like the most boring thing ever. You're like, well, of course you could do that. But back then it wasn't happening. There were, there were, there were no individual experts with websites. None. The first site that anyone had heard about where people could go and read articles from experts was, you know, what used to be called testosterone.net. It's T Nation now, but it was like a website for hardcore people interested in, you know, weightlifting and sports and all that kind of stuff, nutrition to go learn from the experts. And that was the only game in town. My business partner and I were like, hey, we should, we should start something. We should start an expert website that just kind of talks about the things you're learning in the lab, things you're learning in scientific literature, breaks it down in sort of, you know, language that someone who doesn't have a PhD can understand. And that's how we began, you know, just publishing free content. Then it sort of we're like, okay, cool. We're doing this, costing us a lot of money. We're making no money. Uh, maybe we should sell some stuff and information products seem like the first thing that we could possibly do. And so we started selling information products uh, that went really well. And then that helped fund a development team. So we, we built an in-house development team to create our first sort of, we'll call it like distance-based, you know, we can live anywhere in the world, work with the top experts kind of coaching program. So nutrition, exercise, lifestyle coaching program. And then after doing that for a while, it was like, hmm, this is pretty cool. Loads of people are asking us though, like about our methodology and about our curriculum and about how we coach because we're getting such good results. But what if we made a education program for coaches? You know, and that turned into the certification. And then the next iteration was now, oh, wow, we're certifying a lot of coaches. I mean, at, at our peak, it was, you know, 30,000 coaches a year. But a lot of them were saying, great, you taught me how you do it. But like, can you give us tools, right? Like, can you give us the curriculum and the program that you use? with all your clients. So then that became our software development project where we created a program called Pro Coach, which you know allowed you like out there in the world to coach using our curriculum or you can modify it for yourself. Uh, and our software with your clients. That really became it. You know, there there wasn't like we sat down and we had this Walt Disney style map of all these vertically integrated products and programs. It was just like, hey, what's, let's try some stuff that we're really passionate about and we have a sense that other people are too and aren't getting. Oh, that's working really well. Okay, cool. What's next? What's missing from this? How do we fill in the gaps here? What are people just trying to pull out of us? Okay, cool. Well, that'll be the next thing then. Uh, and that's really how Precision Nutrition became to be. I, I wish I could tell you a story of how I was a strategic mastermind. But uh, really, it was just 
probably closer to how the world really works, which is, you know, a bunch of trial balloons, some, some luck. I do think I have the unique ability of sensing into what people are really interested in. And when it overlaps with what I'm interested in, there's an opportunity to do some good stuff with that. There was something you said in the beginning of that, that I've been kind of holding on to, which is you mentioned that this, this all was born of a, of a personal interest and passion. And I have found through my experiences as part of being in networks with hundreds, if not thousands of mm -hmm. gym owners and health professionals that there's always kind of this underpinning that is unique to fitness and nutrition spaces that doesn't exist as unanimously in other industries. In other words, like it's, yeah. it's almost awkward if I go into a room where there are a hundred gym owners and there are three people that are there specifically because they're just interested in the business aspect of it. Almost yeah. everybody came from the mindset of, I got into this because I love health and fitness and I have to figure the business side out to make this a sustainable pursuit and actually be able to help people long-term. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And there's almost even like uh, skepticism of uh, when the suits come in and try and overlay their business principles on top of our health and fitness stuff. And it's probably warranted because... Rarely have I seen that work particularly well. If you come from a straight business background, uh, you know, I talked about the supplement industry earlier. This would happen all the time. And this was one of my first like wake up calls to this, you know, as certain supplement companies would get bigger, they would start looking for executive teams and they try and hire from the big food and beverage companies. And the folks coming in from the big food and beverage would come in like, oh, of course I can do this. This is like nothing compared to what I used to do. Right. And the people in the fitness supplement industry would be like, oh, we need someone like that because they've done big things. And it invariably never worked because they didn't understand the market at all in any way. And it behaves so differently than a lot of conventional markets. And it was really hard to connect with the teams, right? Because a lot of the people take those kind of jobs because they're passionate about this stuff. And it's really hard to connect with that when you only think about this for a few hours a day, you know? It's kind of hard to connect with the audience if you're not part of it, especially in, mm -hmm. in the fitness space. And, you know, that's like business rule 101 is know yeah. your customer more than anyone else. Yeah. You know, I was, um, I was, I was thinking as you were talking through that and I was like, I wonder if there's any thing that John today would give advice to John back then. Like, is there, is there anything that if you had to talk to yourself as you were starting PN, what advice would you give to yourself? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's an interesting question. It's often posed in because it's like, well, there are people like you were back then out here listening and, and they probably want to hear some advice, right? I always struggle with it because the things that I think about now are not the problems I had back then. You know, uh, I remember Alan Cosgrove's a well-known guy in health, fitness, strength field. And Alan uh, was talking to me about one time he had lunch with Bill Parisi. So Bill started the Parisi Speed Schools and, you know, he's a little generation ahead of um, Alan and I who are about the same age. And he's like, I was young. I was just starting my first gym. And I'm asking Bill, who's like grown one of the most successful franchises in the history of the fitness speed sport conditioning industry. I'm asking him questions about like what squat racks to buy for my gym. Uh, what an idiot I was, right? Maybe, but also you needed squat racks at the time. You know what I mean? That was your biggest problem at the time. I have 
a limited amount of dollars. I've got an outfit. I've got to outfit this, this gym space. How would I do it? You know, I'm not sure how to solve this problem. Asking him questions about how to, you know, sell your first 10 franchises is putting the cart before the horse, right? You don't have squat racks yet. So I often think about that, you know, this becomes my, my life lesson now. This turns into the lesson for the young person, which is, and I actually, uh, my good friends, Molly Galbraith and Casey Sasek from Girls Gone Strong, we've been friends for years. Like they, we uh, have spent uh, four winters in Arizona as a family and Molly and Casey have lived with us most of those winters. So they're, they're family. And we spent lots of time talking about business because they were just building theirs up as I was sort of selling mine. And they, they say the most impactful advice that I've ever given them. And there's like, and there's lots is, is this one, which fits right in with what we're talking about. It's the idea that when making decisions in your business, it's super important to go out and, and get help you know, to get advice, to hear what other people think, right? But there's a couple of things you have to do. One is you have to find believable people. And Ray Dalio writes about this in his principles book. You know, believability is, has this person done the thing that you want to do before? Yes or no? Yes. Okay. We can keep talking. Have they done it successfully? Yes. Okay. We can keep talking. Have they done it in varied conditions and environments? Uh, so for example, Ray comes from the investment world. Like have they had success in an up market and a down market and all, everything in between? If yes, we can keep talking. And then the last one is the, the most critical is, uh, does it make sense to you? You know, does what they're saying make sense? Like we can have a smart person who's done it before and successfully in multiple environments. And if you can't figure out how to do it, either because of limitations in your experience or because it's not quite how you do things in your business or market or whatever, then it's, it's not good advice. It's not believable for your needs. And so as a young person, this is more meta. It's like when you're going out looking for advice, you have to find believable people, which is the criteria I just told you. And then when you walk away from believable conversations, you have to ask yourself, can I use that in my business? Yes or no, because you'll get lots of great advice, but none of it is a perfect fit for your stuff. You know what I mean? So you have to discount people's advice or ignore great advice altogether or figure out how to apply it differently than that person said, right? And it's, it's easier said than done, but it's so critical, right? Because if someone's like, hey, well, this funnel is really effective at marketing or whatever, right? And, this, and you're talking one of the greatest marketers in your industry, but your audience is different, then you have to pick what's good about that funnel idea and you have to really make it your own right? So you can't just blindly accept any advice. So, you know, what advice would I give to myself? It would probably be this, like, if you do it right, you're going to be in the room with really smart people, but don't just blindly follow what they say, do what they did. Because the two reasons, one is they're them, they're more successful than you. They have a head start. You can't compete with something that they do that's innate to them. You know, you'll just be a less experienced, less quality facsimile of that. You can't just copy them. However, you can take what they've done. You kind of squint your eyes and look for the shapes of it. And then you can say, all right, cool. How do I do that with my audience? How do I change the words around? So it's like their advice is a loose template and not a playbook, you know, and now you get to adapt it and put the right words in for you and say, no, that would never work for our audience. 
done that way, but this way could actually work. And it's not too far from that, but I have to make these couple of changes. So I think that's the best I can do because it's a tool that you'll have to use over and over and over and over again, right? Every time you have to make a decision, you got to pull smart people in to help you build up your confidence in that decision, right? And that's, I mean, this is not just a business lesson, by the way. You know, if you're trying to get in shape, you have to do the same thing. You know, if you're trying to figure out how to be a better parent, you have to do the same thing. Where are the smart, believable people that I need to be next to and learn from? Okay, cool. How do I adapt what I'm hearing from them into my life, my unique abilities, what makes me special, what makes me unique and what make, makes people want to hear from me? Well, you, I could sum everything you, you just said up into two points for myself, which is you look at people that are 100 steps ahead of you for direction and look at people that are one to 10 steps ahead of you for strategy and tactics. And then look at yourself for how to implement all that, right? So it's, it, I, and I think you summarized it really great, but the last step's so critical because that's where I think people make a lot of mistakes. They look at the people one to 10 steps ahead of them for strategy and then they just try and ape their strategy, right? Mm. And it's like, oh, wait, wait, wait. Who are you? Who are they? What are their biases? What's their audience like? What are their customers like? What do they want from the world? Is it the same as you? Uh, if you're not doing any of that work and then you just try and copy and pretend you're them, you know, when I say it this way, it's obvious, but most people slip into this very easily and it's a problem. It's very true. You know, and I was, I was thinking that content ha will help with this problem, but I think we're all, we're generally very bad in reflection of thinking about the problem solving that we were going through 10 or 20 years ago. So recalling that and being able to put it together in a clear and concise mapping for people that are at that stage is, is rather difficult. Yeah, you, you're categorizing something I've often talked about, which is there's a, a principle that I, I used to talk about, like, how do you do continuing education in your career, right? So, you know, step one is you take a course, take a bunch of courses, you build up a knowledge base. Step two is now like mentorships and internships, right? You get around smart people doing stuff. What, what do you do after that, right? What's the next evolution? There's got to be one, right? Most people who've done both see dead end where you're like, I'm not learning anymore from this. I'm spending, I'm going to things, I'm getting that, but I'm not, it's not getting me to the next plateau. Uh, for me, that was like following people who you wanted to learn from and not asking them for advice, but seeing what they do, you know? So one principle I used to use was each year I would follow, I choose one person to follow, right? And I don't know if I want to learn about marketing, it might be marketer X. If I wanted to learn about relationships, it might be, you know, relationship expert Y. And, um, it's really easy with like marketing people, right? Because they're trying to sell you their marketing stuff. So instead of buying their marketing books per se, which I'll do and reading them and going, ah, oh, this is how you market. I watch how they market to me, right? So I extract my, it's like, so I'm an observer of their marketing process. So I sign up for every newsletter they have. I buy every product they have. And sometimes I don't even read them. I buy the product so I can see how they do customer nurture relationship after you buy the product. You know what I mean? I want to see what emails they send. I want to see who reaches out to me and checks in if I'm enjoying the product or the service. I want to see not what they say to do, but what they actually do, right? And that's a different level of abstraction, 
right? So to your point, and why would I do that? Well, it's because people are generally bad at reflecting on their problem solving in the past. They're even bad about knowing their formula for success, like to turn a very complex system of actions and steps and messages and, you know, people around them because like really successful things aren't one person doing it. It's a whole team, right? They're really bad when you say, Hey, so can you tell me how you've achieved success? Right? So that big, complex, often chaotic system. Now I'm going to have to turn that into just some words to tell you in a finite period of time too hard, you know? So even when I was writing my change maker book, I was like, really agonizing over this exact problem. I'm like, the goal is to teach people, you know, how to think about building a thing and then how to go, how to go about building the thing and then how to nurture that over the long term. And I was like, man, am I, how do I get at what I actually think I learned over the years and what I actually think matters, right? Because I can say things and we're all socially conditioned to say some of the same kinds of things at the same point in time. Like it's, it's no surprise that certain messages come up for a couple of year period and then they go away and then new messages everyone says, right? We're just all influencing each other and we're following a script. This is the right thing to say about business at this time. This is the right thing to say about fitness at this time. This is the right thing to say about intermittent fasting at this time because everyone's saying it. It's socially acceptable and there's some gravity towards saying it that way. But the question is you want to be a good teacher you have to like extract out of all that and say, well, I felt the words that everyone's using tripping out of my mouth. Are they the right words for this occasion? And not everyone's doing that, right? So even when you're sitting in mentorships and internships, are you actually learning what that person did to be successful? What they actually do today to be successful? Or just the words they're struggling to share about that thing, right? Just because someone's great at X doesn't mean they're great at writing about X, or speaking about X, there's fundamentally different skills. So yeah, to your point, like understand humans are flawed when you go to get advice, you know, they're maybe trying to do their best. And I appreciate that. But for me to learn the best things, I can't have to stumble through you trying to be your best. I, I just need to see what works, you know? So that's kind of how I think about that. Yeah. You know, and I, there's this interplay between thinking and doing, and there's pitfalls on both sides. And I, I can vulnerably admit that I have fallen in both holes multiple times, right? So on the learning Same, side, yeah. you have this kind of like mental masturbation where like, you're never actually doing anything, but you're reading all the books, you're taking all the courses, you're listening to all the TED talks and all the, you know, YouTube videos, but you're never actually putting things into action. And then on the other side, you have people that are like, do, 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 but they're not measuring their success. So what they're real, they're not actually improving anything. And if they are, they, they don't know what it is. They don't know how to optimize for what's working. So these are like two pitfalls. I find that I'm speaking, thinking of business owners, but people probably fall into this trap a lot in their lives. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And, and I don't know, popular memes make fun of them for it. Right. And, and I, I just, it's a shame because these are very normal processes, you know what I mean? And you can understand why it happens. And I, I'm even describing one way it happens, like well-intentioned learner goes to meet well-intentioned teacher or coach, right? 
And they're trying to have an interaction where a teacher or coach gets the joy of sharing something they think they know and learner gets to learn from that person and maybe go apply it in their lives in some way. And even under the best faith conditions, it can go badly because teacher isn't always gifted at putting into words what practices work because humans don't always have access to that. You know, I, I read a thing um, the other day, uh, it just in, in the nutrition space, uh, Dr. Terry Walls. I don't know if you've heard of, of Dr. Terry Walls, but um, this is a person with MS who, you know, followed a series of dietary protocols. And so now she sells a bunch of books and products about how she cured her MS with, with these nutrition interventions. There's a big study at the University of Iowa happening right now about it, you know, and um, they're for the first time trying to tease out like they were like, do this exercise and eat these foods and take these supplements and do this meditation and do this sleep. Right. So how are we supposed to know? Like now I'm someone with MS. I'm in pain. I want to learn from someone who's a MD, PhD, who's cured their own MS. Like this, this, this seems like it's the person you got to go to. That's believable right there, you know, but how can Terry... Dr. Walls possibly know that it was the diet that did it. Can't, right? So you have to go try an experimental trial and see. Uh, hopefully we get some answers from that. Now, if you have MS and you want to try all the things, that's great. This is go do, go do action, right? But even in these scenarios with really smart people who've done the thing, they still are not sure among this like cacophony of interventions and things that you do every day, like a business owner has to do a million tasks every single day. What actually mattered in all the things that I did, you know, and it's really important to reflect on that, especially as you grow a team or, or you try and uh, launch a new product on the back of a previous one, or maybe launch a new business. It's really important if you want to teach what you think, you know, but that's my phrasing always. Like I want to try and get at in as high fidelity as possible. What I think I know it's not what I know. That's impossible. It's too hard. I can't tell you what I know. What I think I know is more truthful. Like I'm going to try my best to extract what I think I learned. It's like an extraction of probabilities. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's basically yeah. what confidence confidence is, right? It's like that's right. how high of a probability do I believe that this thing is going to occur? Mm -hmm. And I have to believe that there's error. There's could be error in there for me to like do it in the highest fidelity, right? I have to believe that. I am a human, I'm flawed, I'm biased, and I just, but human nature is going to make me like think too confidently about the next thing I'm about to say, you know? Uh, and then I have to go, wait, okay, cool. What are the chances that that actually mattered? Uh, let me really think that through, you know? Yeah. Now I don't mean to hop from one difficult and deep question to another, but <laughs> is there anything that you have fundamentally changed your mind on in the nutrition space? You know, I mean, again, it's hard to look back retro retrospectively and say, what was I thinking back then? You know, like, uh, it's easy for me to say, oh, when I was in my 20s, I was largely an idiot. But, you know, <laughs> aside, aside from that, it's like, what? I mean, there have been a lot of, there have been a lot of adjustments. So I'll give you a couple of examples, right? So I, I don't think I'm like fundamentally in a different ballpark. But like in the year 2000, for example, you know, I, I was writing an article called like the seven habits of highly effective nutrition programs. 
that was a bit of a legendary piece that I wrote back in the day. And almost everyone used to quote it back in the early 2000s. Obviously, I played off of Stephen Covey's work. And uh, I did, in fact, get a cease and desist letter from Stephen Covey for using the seven habits. Um, Please tell me you kept it. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yes. Um, and uh, so I added three um, to, to be on the safe side of the, that organization. At the time, it, I mean, it's the same principles like protein, you know, carbs and fats should probably be reciprocal, right? If one's high, the other one low, fruits and vegetables, you know. However, the major difference was, and, and Eric Cressy, who a lot of people know in the the strength and conditioning world and fitness world uh, actually interviewed me on a podcast about this a bunch of years ago, you know, asking like, Hey, I'm going to read to you the seven habits of highly effective nutrition programs. And I want you to just react to them. I thought it was a great little experiment and he's smart. Like Eric and I known each other a really long time. Like he knows that they would be cringeworthy to me now. Right. But only cringeworthy because of the language I used. I was, I was, I was young. I was super hardcore. I was writing to a hardcore audience of people who were like also young, probably didn't have demanding careers or families or any of the stressors or challenges of, uh, you know, busy lives uh, and had, were probably self-identified into a category of very high discipline. So my comments were like, eat around this amount of protein at every meal, right? Eat around this amount of fruits and vegetables at every meal, mm. you know, eat around this amount of frequency per day. So that might be one thing that I've, I've really changed is, you know, back then it was eat every, you know, four hours on average, no matter what, you know? And so the cringeworthy part wasn't any of the particular advice because it, most of it still stands, you know, we'll talk about the meal timing thing in a minute, but it was just so certain black and white authoritarian, you know what I mean? They were like commandments, thou shalt not, thou shall, you know, and a lot more nuance. And I'll just say softness, you know, flexibility, empathy has entered my approach. You know, part of that softness, I think, is like getting older and, and looking at all the different kind of lifestyles that could exist, you know, and saying, hey, being super into measuring your food and getting all your food right is just one. You know what I mean? One of many. I don't even know if this is ranks as one of my top ones. You know what I mean? When I look at ways of living, you know, uh, we'll loop back around to some of them in a minute. Don't let me forget. But I remember being at a conference with uh, a really well-known speaker and I'm embarrassed about what I said to, to this day, but I want to comment on the spirit of the whole exchange. You know, I, I was talking about how like on this particular day, like our kids were young. I uh, didn't like being away from them at all. And I was winding down my speaking work, but I was, I was living in uh, Toronto and I was invited to come speak at a thing in New York. So I'm like, oh, it's a quick flight, whatever. So I could probably like get up, work out, take the kids to school, fly to New York, do my talk, get home in time for, to put them to bed. Right. So I was telling this guy like, Hey, you know, this is what today looks like for me or whatever, you know? And I was like, feeling like heroic dad, you know, in the process, like, you see what I did? I got my workout in and he's like, yeah, yeah. And, and then he kind of leaned in and was like, you know, and think about all these lazy couch potatoes sitting there in their stupid lives, stuffing French fries into their mouths, never working out. And he went really hardcore, like 
And I was like, oh man, that sounds like really cynical to me, you know? And he was like, oh, like take it aback. And again, I regret saying that because this is a colleague of mine. Uh, I probably could have softened the response or maybe said nothing at all. But that was like one of the first times I realized like, oh man, this industry like champions that particular way of looking at the rest of the world. They're lazy, they're disgusting, they're a drain on the, on the medical system. Why don't they just get off their asses and do some things, you know, like we do, right? And early in my career, I probably would have agreed. I would have hit the heart here, here on Instagram, you know what I mean? Would have made a comment. But nowadays, I'm like way softer about that, you know, like, hey, like the people have all, there's all kinds of legitimate, valid ways of living your life that don't include meticulous meal planning, you know? I'm really happy I got to the place where I see that and where, hey, if you want to eat better, yeah, I can help you with that. Sure. Here's some things you can try. What's your life look like anyway? You know, you know, the, the classic interaction is guy comes up to you at the gym. You look pretty fit. Like, Hey man, I uh, watch you work out. You look pretty good. Like, what do you, uh, what do you eat after workouts? You know? And so, you, you know, the classic 20 something JB would have been, well, you know, after workouts is a really critical time to kickstart protein synthesis and replenish glycogen and so you want a fast digesting protein like whey and you want to get a fast digesting carbohydrate especially if you're going to train again tomorrow you could build a shake like this and you really optimize your post-workout window of opportunity right that's that's how young jb might have handled this right me now it's like what do you what do you eat now after your workouts what do you like to eat after your workouts what, what are you trying to do you know oh okay take well I only work out once in a while. Like if, if they give you the answer, I train every day, I'm trying to win the Olympics. Now that's going to give you a different answer than if you're like, Hey, I just want to lose a couple pounds. My knees started hurting lately. And you know what I mean? There's a different response there. So these are some of the things that have changed for me. And I think a lot of the things that have changed has to do with my emotional posture towards the lifestyle rather than any particular piece of advice. Right. But getting back to the advice, you know, I, I used to more strongly advocate toward a, a frequency of eating that was a bit higher. And that worked really well for people who you know, made strength training and, and even uh, endurance training or both a major part of their week, probably super useful in that particular context and community. And nowadays I know it probably doesn't matter how often you eat, you know, as long as by the end of the day or Maybe even by the end of a couple of days, you know, you've generally got enough calories, enough protein, you know, and, and then, then advice like what Michael Pollan has posited, you know, becomes really the cornerstone, right? It's, it's not particularly instructive, but it's a good underpinning, right? So, you know, eat mostly food, you know what I mean? Not too much, mostly plants, you know, eat whole food, not too much, mostly plants. Like, man, that's pretty good. You know, and again, in my early hardcore nutrition days, I'd be like, oh, look at this guy coming into our field. Doesn't know what he's doing. What, what's, who's he coached? You know what I mean? Uh, what's his degree in? Oh, journalism. Great. Another one of these. <laughs> you know what I mean? Talking about how we should be eating. F this guy. You know, and now I'm like, nah, I don't know how helpful the advice is when it's time for me to plan lunch, but it's a good underpinning for thinking about how a coach can help people plan lunch, you know? 
Yeah, well, I, I hope you provide yourself some grace, uh, you know, as it relates to those the, the seven, uh, you know, highly effective, uh, you know, nutrition principles or whatever that, that title was, it, because of the fact that you and your audience were different people back then. Um, you know, and, and you spoke to the softness as you get older. And, and, and I feel that 100 times over. And I think part of it is becoming a parent. I think part of it is also solving different problems within your clientele base and for the people around you. And adults face more complex problems as they get older. And it gives you a greater sense of empathy because you're also experiencing these too. So it's it makes you far less rigid. And um, something I've been I've been kind of lingering on recently conceptually just thinking about things is it rules are really great for for starting habits you know wake up i wake up at this time every day i eat this much protein every day for breakfast but they're terrible for forming positive long-term sustainable relationships with things like food and fitness what do you think about that yeah yeah i agree you know like what's the right tool at the right time it's hard to know if you're trying to like, you know, autopilot your own journey. It's where good coaching comes in. But yeah, I, I agree. Like having some framework of do this, don't do this is pretty good in the beginning. As long as there needs to be another layer on top of that, though, because if we say and, and this, I appreciate that this isn't exactly what you're saying. So I, I'm just reacting to a different thought. Rule based stuff in the beginning to give you like some scaffolding to get started is good only to the extent that you can appreciate that there has to be like a thoughtful underpinning to the whole thing of reality and choice. And like, what, what am I actually doing here? I'm making rules to help me in a time where being ruleless is difficult with the intention of getting off the rules eventually, because what can happen with rules is you can develop superstitions pretty easily. And those superstitions can stay with you for a really long time and turn into all kinds of problems. That or an identity wrapped up yep. in the, the rules that you've put in place. And this is the interesting thing that I find for people that have been in the fitness and nutrition space 10 or 20 years, you know, as it relates to, to precision nutrition, you have that like level one and level two. It's it's the difficulty that some people face in going from level two back to level one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 You know, the it's and this is, again, human nature. So it's not like I oh, look at people being dumb. It's like, look at people being people, you know, so I mean, it happens, it happens to me all the time. Like, and so I have to remember, like, hey, I'm gonna um, build some rules into how I'm going to learn this new thing or do this new thing or change this behavior as a way to be really explicit about what I'm trying to do here on each day or each moment or whatever. But I need to make sure not to develop superstitions around this doing this to overcome inertia now, but don't start to believe that thing a is bad just because I made a rule not to do it at certain times because I would otherwise do it, you know, uh, and a, a real classic example comes from bodybuilding. And I've lived this many times over, you know, I used to compete in bodybuilding contests. I won the Mr. Junior U USA in uh, 1995. So many, many moons ago. And I remember when I would prepare for bodybuilding contests, there were certain foods you just had to kick out because they were too calorie dense or whatever the case may be. And you'd be off them for, you know, 12 to 16 weeks as you were trying to get to this like unnaturally unhealthy, low body fat percentage. I know those foods aren't bad for me. I know potato isn't bad for me. You know, I know peanut butter or strawberries aren't things that are evil and, and will hurt my physique, make me fat, hurt my health. But during the 16 weeks where they've been cut out of my eating plan, 
like you almost have to develop this adversarial relationship to them, right? Nope, can't have that. It's, it's I won't be lean enough on X date, right? Even though I crave it and I want it, right? And then when the contest comes and goes and you start, you know, returning back to a normal sense of eating, there's a subconscious aversion, a superstition, a fear of potatoes and strawberries and whatever, peanut butter. And it's really, really hard to overcome. Like, and you'll intellectually tell yourself, like, wait a second, you know, four or five months ago, I was eating potatoes every day and I was fine. I was alive. I was happy with my physique. You know, there was nothing evil about them, but still, as you get near them, you have like this reaction, like, no, no potato, you know? And then you're like, oh, having to deal with that. And I think that's the danger with like hard and fast rules. They can become subconscious superstitions if you're not super aware that that's the danger right so this isn't free license to have no rules because again in the beginning you need some you need some scaffolding around your behaviors and your habits and and your choices uh as long as and and this is how i think you know we get let's say very low carbohydrate zealots you know so they struggled with weight management or uh, some aspect of their health. They put on a low carbohydrate diet or chose to follow one. They gained a whole lot of benefits, maybe got more energy, lost body fat, controlled their blood sugar, wh whatever happened as a result of that intervention. And now all of a sudden carbohydrates, the superstition is that they're, they're, they're so dangerous. Like when I used to eat them, look at how my body was wrecked. And then I took them out and look, it's all better. Look how dangerous they are. And that's a, that's a superstition. It's not true, right? Something else happened. Great that you modified your choices in your life and that it's going better. But that, what you're saying isn't true. And I understand how you got to that place, but it's a problem to live the, less, the rest of your life believing that. And then an even bigger problem going out and teaching that. Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, at the, at the crux of this, I think, you know, we can break this up into practical versus optimal, but then we have to go a layer deeper, which is like, what is the life you're actually, or what is the thing you're optimizing for? And then what is the life you're trying to create by being practical, right? Because if your identity gets too tied up in this, or you're, you're, it, you know, there's misdirection in terms of the optimization. So like a good example of this is, you know, I think of myself, there was a phase I went through where I was incredibly adamant about like getting my training in and sque finding time for my training windows and like really pushing my body to its limits. And there was a moment where I had this like epiphany where I was like, this is severely affecting my ability to show up as a parent. Like I'm, I'm exhausted. Things hurt. It, it's not good. Right. And it completely was a, a paradigm shift and a reframing for me in the way that I thought about how fitness was supplementing the rest of my life. And I think that identity shift takes place for a lot of people. And there's, there's this shedding of sorts that you have to go through as part of transitioning from somebody that has athletic pursuits, or is just a, a fitness enthusiast to the umph degree to I'm now a fit parent. And I do this because I want to be able to be here long term for my kids. Mm -hmm. So uh, if you don't mind, I'd love to explore that for a minute. Yeah, let's like, do what? It. So your previous non-negotiables were like, if I have a training session planned on a given day, then I make it happen no matter what. Yes. So and I don't, fair to say, I don't right? miss reps. I, I do everything, all the X's and O's. Yeah. Okay. To end. So I presume you have some non-negotiables now. What, what are they now? 
protein, eating greens every day, yeah. amount of water I take in, how late I can have coffee. <laughs> right. And what about on the exercise training gym front? I strength train four days a week and I, yeah. I do sprinting two days a week. How's it different now than it was in terms of your commitment to never missing or whatever we might say? I would say that I have reduced my training windows to make them mm -hmm. more malleable throughout the course of the week. So that's one thing rather than rather than committing to two and a half hour training sessions and then getting upset when I didn't have time to bake that in. I made them 90 minutes, including the warm up. So they're far more realistic to be able to be achieved. Right, right, right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And for me, the I've, I'm in the same scenario. And the other one that I do is I design them so that like Monday could happen on any day of the week. You know, so like it's, they're not designed so that they have to fall on a particular day in a particular sequence, you know? Interestingly, another difference that I, I have made was, so now I, I go through a hypertrophy phase for a particular region of my body. So I might do like upper body hypertrophy and then I'll do lower body maintenance. And then I'll do that for six weeks and I'll flip. And I do this and find this to be very helpful because it's really difficult to incorporate all of that effectively in your training. Whereas like now I can, I can really focus on one particular aspect of my fitness while dialing the other one back. And I can squeeze that into the windows that I, that I can manage most of the time to get in with my training. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh gosh. I, this is going to be so embarrassing, but I'll admit it. Um, I wrote an article that, that covers this that uh i think is is really well done but i can't remember i can't remember the name of it again i've been i've been out of the game for a while but i'm gonna you know what we'll put it in the show notes afterwards Perfect. but i wrote i wrote about this very thing uh using the dials and burners as like the analogy right so they're being like just a, a honest appraisal when you're about to undertake a new goal for example or even uh just a new training phase right where you say okay cool what am i realistically capable of achieving right now okay good how do i create some structure around achieving that okay good uh what in my life is gonna have to be put on the back burner to simmer while i'm i'm doing this right so you're like hey for the next six weeks it's going to be upper body hypertrophy well what am i going to do about my legs oh well we'll just simmer we'll just keep them on low on the back burner we'll keep them warm because i'm training in we know it's not going to detrain in six weeks right so how do you intentionally do this before going into something and, and this is both a psychological tool so not to beat yourself up for not training legs like a hardcore athlete that i am also really valid for balancing recovery resources and the other priorities in your life right and so that one analogy is the back burner one right like what food are you going to be heating on the high burner right now uh, and which ones will you just be keeping warm on the back burners. Uh, and the other one is, is the dials, right? The dial idea. What does 10 look like in terms of following your nutrition? And what does zero look like in terms of following your nutrition? And what should you turn the dial to nowadays based on all the things going on in your life? Right. And there's not just nutrition. There's also your training, your sleep, your stress management. And let's just say that's in your fitness bucket, which is only one bucket in the context of your whole life because there's the work bucket and the parenting bucket and all that, right? So when you help people understand this and when you remind yourself that this exists in your own life because we can be like, I'm a coach, I get this, I can help you with it. And then I forget to do it on Tuesday. But you know, 
then you think about where each of those dials actually could realistically be turned to, right? What, what does the fitness dial on six look like? Because my parenting dials on eight right now or whatever the case may be. So that's, that's the other way I, I think about it. And you're right. When you're younger, the, there's less problems sometimes, or they're less complex. There might not be less problems, but there's less complexity to them, especially if there's just one, one person to look after yourself. You know, now you have other people and that adds a couple of extra buckets. You know, whether we want to think about these as like 90 day sprints, you know, quarters of the year or, or mesocycles, however you want to put it. I think at the end of the day, there's this level of intentionality that's necessary where you're doing these these routine check ins with yourself at agreed upon times to figure out where the dials sit. Now, where I think we could go with this conversation, because I have so many things I want to ask you is. All of this, if you were to zoom out and take kind of a 30,000 foot view is geared around how do I do this for as long as possible? And you have been very focused and interested in the health span space, especially as of recent. And I wanted to pick your brain on that. Like how, well, first off, what is health span to you? How did you get into this? And what do you think are some of the markers that people should be paying attention to? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good questions. The, so, uh, you know, you're talking about doing this for as long as possible, right? And this could, this is going to mean different things, right? But be able to use my body in the ways that I want to, to be able to, aesthetics are still important to me. I still want to look like I work out, you know, um, I want to function like I work out. I want to have endurance to, you know, I don't know the other day, our son's soccer coach texted me right before practice. And he was like, Hey, we're doing parents versus kids tonight. You up for it? You know? And I'm like, yeah, let's do it you know and um i want to be able to jump in on a pickup soccer game against a really good youth soccer team and you know not die um <laughs> and so that's what we're talking about here and you know i'm approaching 50 years old now and i've been doing this for a really long time you know i competed in bodybuilding like i said when i was a junior um i compete in masters level track now I've persisted. My goals have changed over the years. I wanted to run a half marathon at some point. So I trained for that. And, you know, but most, most of the time it's been either strength training or some kind of sprinting. But as I approach 50, it's just been more interesting to me to think about my lifestyle is pretty good and has been for a really long time. I know a lot about nutrition. I know a lot about exercise and I practice those things routinely with a high level of discipline for decades. You know, when I measure things, some of those things don't look like they did when I was 20, you know? So you're like, hey, this, this is, some of these things are going to be trending in a, a worse direction without some focused attention, right? Now, if you have a host of blood values out of whack and your body fat is too high and you're sedentary and, you know, have a, have a, a high resting heart rate and a low ability to consume oxygen, you know, there's a holistic approach that's required for you to start to correct some of those things. But I already do a holistic approach, you know? So the question is, as I get older, will things come up where I need to do like a strategic targeted approach, right? And the answer is yes. Inevitably for all of us, the answer will be yes. It could be a joint dysfunction. It could be a high blood sugar associated with metabolic dysfunction. So what I've been really interested in is not necessarily the interventions. Okay. So not necessarily like, what do you do for high blood sugar? Cause I think we already know most of the interventions, 
right? Sleep is paramount, stress management. There's certain nutritional things you have to do and, and movement is so critical. Pro- probably do something every day, not necessarily strength training or high intensity. So we already know all those things are necessary for staving off some of the effects of aging and continuing our functionality into older ages, which is what some people are calling health span, right? The span of years that you can do things with your body without pain or dysfunction. You know, I mean, Peter Atia, I see outlive in the, in the back there, <laughs> yeah. you know, he, he talks about for him, there's like a definition of like getting to the oldest age possible before you just drop off the cliff and die. You know what I mean? Which, which we, we all do unless somehow in our lifetime, which isn't going to happen, we prevent death, you know, um, through nutrition intervention or whatever. But like a lot of people have a slow decline in their latter decades and they just losing function, losing function, losing function, losing function. And, and it's just a, a terrible last 30 years of your life. Uh, for him, he's like, can we keep it high enough so that it's pretty positive and you can do still a ton of things? And then at the very end, 98 years with all your great grandchildren around you, you can just pass, you know, as you, as you would, but you've had more years of life enjoyment or at least enjoyment of life including the use of your body. So for me, the question just becomes not like, and this is what everyone's rushing into, like, what do you do? What special vitamin or mineral derivative do you take? But like, what do you measure, right? Like, what can we actually measure to figure out if we're starting to see that slow decline before it becomes a clinically diagnosable disorder, right? So, you know, when we, when we're looking at like metabolic function, right, you can look at things like your blood sugar and your hemoglobin A1C, right? And those are markers of what your blood sugar is fasted in the morning or your three month average blood sugar. The question just becomes like, do I want to wait and watch it increase year after year, although it's still in the healthy range until all of a sudden I tip over into pre-diabetic or if I see oh, two or three years of increase in my blood sugar from what it was when I was 43 or whatever, can I start thinking about blood sugar management and manipulation early, right? This is the same for cardiovascular disease, right? Am I looking at my lipids, you know, and, and we, we know you can get a traditional lipid panel. Most people do if they get a semi-annual physical, but there's, there's other markers. And can I look at my genetics and can I have a scan? You know, I, I don't want to discover stage four cancer. I want to discover stage one cancer, you know? So this has been a project of mine for the last little while, just reading the literature, figuring out what just a, a normal person could do and measure as they are in their forties and fifties and sixties to like get a dashboard indicator on things starting to trend in the wrong direction before they're full blown out of whack. You know, like tires losing pressure slowly, right? So how can we detect that? And then if you're already living a holistic, healthy lifestyle, say, well, wait a second, starting to get dashboard indicator around my cardiovascular health, like metabolic function still good, musculoskeletal system good, no signs of cancer, no signs of neurodegeneration, but cardiovascular systems starting to get dashboard indicator light. All right, cool. Now I'm going to put some of my you know health and fitness energy into that specifically. And I, I have a, I, I may or may not, but I at least have the choice to do that, 
right? So I might say, hey, I've traditionally been a into like sprinting. I compete as a master sprinter. I do strength training, but you know what? I should probably spend some time doing specific cardiovascular type training, even at the expense of this other stuff. If health span is a really important thing to me, right? Or if my uh, blood sugar starts to move in the wrong direction, I can say, oh, is there a type of exercise that'll increase my insulin sensitivity? You know, do I need to include more long, slow? Do I need to include more walks in the morning, right? For someone who's been an athlete their whole lives, like a 20 minute walk in the morning every day, doesn't feel like a powerful intervention, but it could be the thing that helps remedy a negative trending blood sugar. So that's what I've been thinking a ton about. So like, you know, some of the things that that are, have been interesting me to me to measure isn't super revolutionary. I, I, just for the first time, I don't know if you um, follow this guy at all, but like in the last couple of weeks, someone turned me on to this Brian Johnson guy. You know what I'm talking about? It sounds familiar. He's uh, he's a, he's one of these uh, super wealthy guys. Uh, I think he sold his company for 800 million or something like that. And now he's doing this longevity slash end aging and death project where he does he like the ultimate don't die biohacker, right? And so he's got a couple of websites where he talks about this stuff. You know, he takes 850 pills every morning. He has a team of physicians measuring and monitoring him, him every single day. You, you watch his stuff and it like gives whiffs of American psycho. But at the same time, it's, it's kind of interesting because you're like, oh, what kinds of crazy things does the medical field tend to measure for high paying clients? around these dimensions of health. It just clicked for you me. You're, are you talking about the liver king? No, no, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> Wait a minute. No, this is a fully different guy. <laughs> no, this, this guy's probably like 48. And uh, I think he calls it the blueprint. And, and then he has a don't die website. But yeah, yeah, he's getting he's getting a lot of attention in the tech Silicon Valley type world. I think he lives out well, there. As, I think as extremists do, business. right? Like that's, yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's right. the one benefit of taking an approach like that is it's it's controversial. And it's, it's provocative. It sticks out like a sore thumb. So there was and a, so, go ahead. And, I, and it just for those listening, I don't bring him up to be like, you should follow Brian Johnson. It's an example of, uh, for me, I look at what he's doing every once in a while. Cause I'm like, Oh, what cool tools or tests are people using nowadays? Cause that's where my interest is. Like, I, I don't care that he takes, you know, these 85 different supplements in the morning and then at lunch and evening. I, I know, I know the folly of thinking that an individual nutrient taken with 800 other individual nutrients at a particular time that we have enough sense of how the body is going to physiologically and, and, you know, biochemically handle all that. But, uh, but I am fascinated with the metrics, right. And to see what he's measuring. So for me, I'm not interested in taking it that far though. I'm like, what can a person do for, let's say, I don't know, $5,000 or less every five to 10 years to monitor their health span and their potential for decline, right? So, you know, is it a whole body MRI scan for, you know, abnormal growths? Uh, and while you're there, check for, you know, arterial plaques and check for, prostate and other issues, right? Can you find one of these? And even in Canada, where it's much more difficult than the US to find these things, you know, I, I found a clinic just not too far from me, uh, closer to Toronto, uh, where you can get like a very, very, very comprehensive scan for like five grand. You could do a whole body MRI for much less. 
you know, closer to a thousand bucks. And all these numbers sound high. Even when I say them, I'm like, oh, people are probably groaning. But again, I'm not talking about doing that every year. You know, I'm talking about like you do this every decade or something. And then there's blood tests. You know, and most and most tests that the doc will prescribe are like 75% of the way there. And then you want to tack on a few extra measures, ApoB, if you're looking at cardiovascular disease, things like that, some hormonal stuff. And then uh, the other thing I'm really interested in is if you have a genetic profile done, you can sync that up with ChatGPT to come up with some powerful insights about your potential risks even before the dashboard indicator goes off, right? So... I spent two hours doing this one day and then I just recorded everything so I can share with my friends. Right. But I went into chat GPT and I was like legit curious. I'm like, well, this thing helped me do this, you know? And then I'm like, Oh, whoa, it does. So I just asked chat GPT, Hey, um, do you have access to enough medical databases to tell me for cardiovascular disease, metabolic disease, uh, neurodegeneration and cancer, all the single nucleotide polymorphisms, which is just your genetic code, that are correlated with each of those and causal of each of those, right? So correlated means, hey, there's been some studies showing that if you have this genetic sequence, you have a higher risk of X, right? But then there's ones that are causal, like their APOE is like uh, those who've seen Limitless, I think it's called with Chris Helmsworth. He learns he has this genetic variant for Alzheimer's that's causal. Like, so he knows now at some point in his life, he's going to get Alzheimer's disease unless he dies of something else first, right? So there are some genetic polymorphisms that are causal of disease. And then there's some that are just related. They, they don't cause it, but if you have that and a bunch of other things go wrong, you might end up with a higher risk of it. So I'm asking GPT, can you give me a list of all the genetic polymorphisms that are associated with and causal of these four things? Again, cardiovascular disease, metabolic dysfunction, um, neurodegeneration, and cancer. Right? And ChatGPT is like, sure, here's all the ones we know about. There's a few others not good research on yet, but these are the primary ones. Sweet. If I were to give you my genetic code in each of those domains, could you tell me my risks? And GPT's like, yep, plug it in. Right? So I did 23andMe, I don't know, 20 years ago. Well, whenever it first came out, probably not 20 years, but whenever it first came out. So, and you can go into your 23andMe profile for those who don't know what that is. It's a genetic testing company. I think started by one of the wives of the Google founders, they have your raw data. So you can just search for like the segment of the chromosome that GPT told you is related to cardiovascular disease. And then they just give you this long list of base pairs. So then you just copy it in to GPT and say, okay, cool. Here's my set of personal base pairs for this area of the chromosome, what your risk is. So again, I did this in like two hours and like, it probably can be done way faster. I was just not sure if GPT could even do it. So I was asking a bunch of dumb questions to figure out what it's capable of. And in that time, I got my own personal relationships and risk factors for all the known correlated and causal polymorphisms. So that's another thing I'm super interested in, right? So I'm like, oh, well, if it tells me I have like normal to low risk for neurodegeneration, but higher risk for colon cancer, now, all of a sudden, I can start to do self-directed work where I can find a coach or a physician to help me mitigate my risks for colon cancer 
right? Do I need to be eating something different? Now it can point me to better screening. All right. Well, I might do a, a whole body MRI once every 10 years, but there's a thing called a fit test. It's where you actually have to send a stool specimen. Our healthcare in Ontario actually covers it. So it's free. And it looks for like tiny droplets of blood in your feces that are associated with development of colon cancer, right? So it's a screening test for colon cancer. So I'm like, oh, if colon cancer is high for me, I'm just going to do a fit test every year. And that's how I can start to manage this. So now I'm going to do some active interventions that may help with colon cancer, whether it's eating more fiber, or eating less of a certain type of food or whatever, processed meats or whatever. And I'm going to screen for it every year. I don't know. I, I'm fully aware as I talk about some of these things and some of the dollars and some of the knowledge here, it could feel overwhelming for some folks. And uh, I don't know, I, I like Brian Johnson's the guy who I mentioned earlier, so like selling a bunch of, I have nothing to sell on this. This is just personal curiosity for me. And I told my really good friends, I'm like, Hey, if you're ever curious about any of this stuff, I'll send you my spreadsheets. So you can go out and do some of this stuff on yourself. Right. So I'm not trying to monetize this, but I'm just trying to see like how affordable could it be to manage health span for the average person? Like, do you have to go to some fancy clinic in San Diego or can you just do it like at the nearest city to you by making a couple calls and figuring out like who's measuring what uh, and using your genetic code uh, all to just figure out like, what do I need to keep an eye on? Okay. Hey, there's a warning sign. Great. Now I can put some of my nutritional energy into that rather than just general healthy eating. You know, and the way I think about it is I used to talk about this all the time. Uh, this I called it a limiting factor analysis, right? Like if I'm working with an athlete and they're eating, let's say a standard American diet, which isn't very good. And they're, it's a female athlete, long distance runner, and they're feeling super low energy. Okay. So we'll just use that as an example. Well, I could go, all right, well, you know, you're not eating enough fruits and vegetables and your protein is low and your carbohydrate choices are bad and your healthy fats are off and probably not getting enough vitamins and minerals. And we can re revamp the whole thing. Or I can just measure your iron. Oh, look at this. Very common, low iron, low ferritin. Well, I could give you an iron supplement and you sip it with a uh, orange juice that may help with absorption and your energy levels are fixed. So do I want to overhaul your whole diet top to bottom and get you eating this platonic healthy diet? Or can I look for the one limiting factor that's standing in the way right now of how you train and perform and fix that, you know? So eventually if we're going to work together in the long run, we'll do both. But right now we do a limiting factor thing. So that's how I think about the health span thing. And it's maybe how I think about it differently and how I'm afforded the ability to think about it differently because I don't have to sell you anything about it. You know, it's just like, I want to measure things to find the limiting factor today. The thing that's trending in the wrong direction today. So we can just do the equivalent of an iron pill and orange juice, you know, rather than overhaul my whole lifestyle, you know? Yeah. I, uh, I imagine there was, quite a few of our listeners there with the pen and paper out <laughs> taking notes when you got into all the chat GPT information. I, I will definitely be doubling back on that uh, myself. Um, you know, and I, I have gone through Inside Tracker. I also did 23andMe. So I'm, I'm fairly, you know, well-versed in this space, but always intrigued and interested to dive deeper. And everything you just talked about was amazing. Well, that's what's, that's what's beautiful about this. With 23andMe, you already have your code, right? So uh, now every we're in decade or whatever, or five years, whatever it is, you just 
research the same. And when I say research, I mean, search again, you know, the same criterion in chat GPT or whatever the AI is at the time, because of course there'll be scientific discoveries and we'll learn about new correlative and causal relationships with disease. But I'm like, you have the blueprint already, which is great. So now you just feed it in every so often to see if anything new has emerged for your own personal risk factors. Yeah, no, I, it's just crazy where we have gotten to. And, and you know, we spoke early on in the podcast about this like information age. And, and this is just like a, a whole new manifestation of that. And I think that it's it's really important for people to take particular interest in their health, maybe not to the same degree that you or I would, depending on how much they want to nerd out on this stuff. But I also think it's an imperative that people don't get caught up in just the monitoring and the things that they they can make changes to that are seemingly effortless. And also stay focused on the things that are the large buckets in the fitness piece that may take a little bit more of a concerted effort. But we know for a fact are incredibly paramount to maintaining long-term physical health. Like a good example of this and I'm sure you've you have heard of this. And if you haven't, I'll, I'll um, I'm going to make sure I put it in the show notes. But it, there was a study done on uh, it was health span in sprinters, and they looked at the how the preservation of fast twitch muscle fibers over the course of the life of somebody who chose a particular uh, form of athletics that that helped preserve these fibers for as long as possible. That the qualitative aspect of their lives was great all the way until the end. So whereas for most people, it's like they live, you know, okay until 50, 60 or 70. And then there's massive decline for the sprinters. They were physically competent well up until a year or two before they passed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. I, I often feel really lucky that I'm good at it, that I enjoy it. Sprinting that is because I appreciate how it's probably the most useful type of exercise for the things that we're talking about right now training for sprinting that is right because it's not just like run 100 meters you know I, when we train for sprinting we do tempo work and we do conditioning work and all that stuff and we do speed work and we do some supplemental strength training and that's kind of how you view it as a sprinter you strength train as you know like ancillary supplemental stuff not as your primary stuff yeah, yeah i feel super lucky because i'm like oh that that thing that you just talked about is like one of the primary activities for helping you age uh, successfully uh, is the thing that I enjoy and tend to be good at. Yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> That's great. If they were like running marathons is the thing, you know, it's going to be like, damn, I guess I'm not going to live great. Well, <laughs> you know? I was just about to bring this up. I think this is why zone two has added a lot of tension to the conversation because there are so many people that have found enjoyment in different areas of athletics that have nothing to do with steady state cardio for extended periods of time. And people are now trying to find these like innovative and creative ways to implement um, zone two cardio into their lives without making it just incredibly boring. Yeah. That's probably Peter's fault too. Um, <laughs> Because he seems to be the one talking a lot about it, and then people are glomming onto that. Sure, but again, you know, to your point, his background was in cycling, where it was a necessity. Right. It was a huge, yep. you know, base of the pyramid for him. So it's something I'm sure that he's far more accustomed to. For me, I'm 15 minutes in, and I'm like, can I get off this ride? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. No, honestly, some days I'm like, yeah, I did my five minutes of zone two. I'm good. <laughs> you know, that's not how it works, buddy. Yeah. Really? It doesn't? Uh, now, John, when we talked a few weeks back, one of the things we talked about is, is how 
you know, it, it can take 10 or 20 years to create something really great. And obviously we were talking about this in the context of you creating precision nutrition and all the benefits, you know, that it has provided to people. That means in a lifetime, you can do multiple big project, great world changing things in your life. So my question to you is, what bone are you gnawing on now? What's next? <laughs> uh, I don't know if it's world world changing. Uh, not. I'm I'm really in like uh, I'd say like um, a lot of my analogies lately have to do with uh, youth sports because I'm really immersed in that world right now and coaching youth sports and and uh, I'm also involved with uh, football Canada and helping create like a high performance pipeline to uh, flag football uh, because it was just uh, for those who don't follow. And I understand if you don't, but it was just brought into the Olympics and the first year is going to be 2028 uh, flag football. And uh, three of our children, uh, the older three, the younger one will probably start soon uh, play flag football. And I coach flag football. So I've been really immersed in that world. Like, you know, like asking questions, like if, because this is my bread and butter, like cool things that are in the startup phase. You know what I mean? That's what I love being a part of. And this is it. It's like a new sport, essentially, that's in the startup phase. Great. That's where I'm at. You know, so all my analogies are to youth sport. But like in youth sport, they essentially, uh, and this is why it's recommended that young people, maybe before 13 or whatever, don't choose a single sport and they get exposed to a lot of sports is because you're in like what's called like an athletic accumulation phase, right? You're just accumulating exposures to athleticism and sport and movement. And uh, that's how I feel in my whatever time I spend doing adult work. You know, most of my time is spent with with our kids. You know, I'm first and foremost right now, a stay-at-home dad. But but yeah, as I play around with projects, you know, I'm doing some development stuff. So I, when we sold PN, I bought a bunch of land and we're building essentially a town and a, a small community in Ontario here, you know, and when we're all done, there should be, you know, five to 700 new homes, a couple apartment complexes, some shopping centers, some gas bars, school, walking trails, uh, some parks, some sports fields, all that kind of stuff. So I'm, I'm learning all about that, which is really interesting that, you know, after spending so many years creating digital things, you know, creating real real things in the world. So that's, that's one thing that I'm gnawing on, not necessarily world changing, but some people have some homes in a nice community to play in. The other thing is, yeah, the stuff I'm, I'm talking about with flag football, uh, I started out just coaching our kids, but I've been involved in some communities where they're like, Oh, Hey, you've got a, a good training background for this. And you like our sport, help us figure out how to create an Olympic team of flag football players. So thinking about, okay, cool. If we reverse engineer that, what do we have to start doing with our six-year-olds to build a pipeline to, you know, the best flag football players at 20. Uh, so that's kind of a, a fun thing I'm working on. One we talked about with the health span stuff. And then, uh, oh, we just kind of wrapped up another one, which was really interesting. Some colleagues of mine, and I, we did surveys of health and fitness professionals. So we measured a bunch of demographic stuff with them. And then we uh, did caliper profiles on them, which is like a personality slash work style slash behavior assessment. Really well validated as, you know, been, I think they've measured over 4 million people with it and, and have some good data on it. And we were just looking for patterns. Like, for example, like, is, is there a personality profile that leads to the most success in health and fitness? What about in different niches? Like, I, I presume maybe an online coach 
may be fundamentally different from someone who works in person as a personal trainer. But what about for someone who works as a quote unquote influencer, like social media slash content creator? Or what about someone in nutrition online versus offline? So we actually, again, we got, you know, dozens of thousands of people. We asked them a bunch of questions and we had them do this caliper, caliper profile. And we were looking for relationships. Like, are there some things that are most highly correlated with success? And that project just wrapped. Precision Nutrition is doing some cool stuff with it. They put together like a white paper and some articles about it. So that's all about to drop probably right in the new year. So we're, we're talking in January or in December now. I don't know when this will go live, but in January-ish. Uh, that that should come out. Uh, and specifically, we found a, a. I don't want to spill it early, but we found like five personality traits that were most highly correlated with two things. One was making money as a health and fitness professional. So there seemed to be traits most associated with have, making a good living uh, versus people making less money. And thankfully and hearteningly. Like, uh, we also found that the metrics of meaning, things like I found purpose in my work, I find meaning in my work, I would recommend this field to others, those kind of things, uh, showed the same patterns. So the same few traits were also related to metrics of meaning as they were with income, which was good. It was good to see. Like, you'd hate for it to be like, you have to have these five traits to make money, but that makes you hate your work. And these five traits make you love your work and you'll never make any money. We did not find that, which was great. <laughs> you know, it seemed like the same traits that help people make more money were the ones that helped them find the most meaning. And so that, that's a cool thing about to be published that, that I enjoyed working on. It's funny because we kind of talked about that a little bit as it relates to the health and fitness space. I feel like the people that end up making the most money or at least are in that stratosphere and conversation are the people that are so genuinely driven to solve problems and add value. So I could, uh, it's, it's not surprising to me that there's that there's a correlation there between those two. Yeah, 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 totally. And I like how you framed it. Actually, you framed it really well because uh, driven to help people, I don't think is the highest correlate uh, with success in the field. Um, and you could have said that, so driven to help people, but you didn't, which I think is, is correct and strategic, right? Uh, to solve problems. That, that's a skill set that you would, if you're driven to add value and solve problems, you'll make money in any field, not just this one. You know what I mean? In this one, though, solve problems and add value actually differentiates you from the, I'm just here to help people crowd. That's a superpower. If you're just here to help people, then you're probably not thinking about solving problems in a particular way and adding value in a particular way. And, and, and I agree, those are, those are important, they're very specific and important words that I think uh, this is a whole nother podcast conversation if we talk about how to grow a business, what add value and solve problems looks like. But yeah, uh, and we see them in some of the base traits that, uh, and again, that'll be out really soon. So folks can read that, read that paper. And the other good part about that paper is that we actually, they're all trainable. So all the, all the behavioral and personality things that are most associated with success are trainable as well. And so we provide some resources around how to develop those things rather than just like, Oh, you're out of luck. Sorry. Yeah. Well, John, I am, um, I'm not upset that we left questions on the table because I would absolutely <laughs> love to, to have you on again, or at very least just have a conversation with you around these topics. Um, you're, you're such a, a knowledgeable person in so many different fields. And I think it speaks 
to the amount of problem solving that you have done and the value adding that you have done in your life. So um, I greatly appreciate coming from the perspective of a gym owner and a coach, um, everything that you've done with PN and have continued to do uh, after you know, that exit. So I appreciate you as an individual and for all of your, your creative thinking and thought leading. Thank you, Derek. That's kind of you to say. And I, uh, I appreciate this conversation. I, you asked some great questions, which I really appreciated and, and prepared well. So, uh, it's been a good experience for me and I hope, uh, it is for listeners as well. Oh, they're going to take so much out of this. <laughs> so much. There's so many good golden nuggets in this one, John. Well, hey, I appreciate you coming on. Um, can you tell the listeners where they can learn more uh, about you and your work? Yeah. I mean, I don't really have anything to sell or anywhere to send anyone uh, with a promise of amazing, awesome things. But I, I do have a website, johnbrody.com. It uh, just tells folks what I'm up to and what I've been up to and what I've done. Took a year hiatus from social media posting and uh, just came back like two weeks ago. So I'm, I'm posting it at Dr. John Barardi on Instagram and same uh, on Facebook. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. And um, hopefully we'll talk again soon. Sounds good, Derek. Thank you. If you feel like the gym is one big, confusing and intimidating playground, a personalized coach from Hardbat Athletics can work with you remotely to help match your goals to an actionable plan. You'll get workout videos and descriptions and have access to coaching calls to make adjustments when you need them. Let us take the guesswork out of your fitness and nutrition. Visit www.hardbatathletics.com to chat with a coach today.